0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale
1: University.
0: Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest today is Professor Boyd Swinburne from Australia. In Australia, he's the Chair in Population Health and Director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center for Obesity Prevention at Deakin University. A highly distinguished scholar, Professor Swinburne has contributed what I believe is some of the most creative work in our field in helping explain where the epidemic of obesity comes from and what might be done about it. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So I'd like to talk about public policy. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sort of a diffuse term. A lot of people don't know exactly what it means. But why in addressing the obesity problem would one want to think about using public policy in the first place when you could just claim that people just have to exert more willpower, have more personal responsibility, and just make personal changes?
1: yeah there is that tension in the debate between personal responsibility and societal responsibility which is often then manifest through through public policy and i think that's true for for many of the public health problems that we face around tobacco or alcohol or road injury and so on but we know from experience in those epidemics that they have not been reversed until public policy has been has been implemented so we've got a lot of evidence from other uh, epidemics that that is how we need to tackle it. Now by saying we need strong public policy doesn't mean to say that personal responsibility uh, disappears. I mean that still has to uh, play play out and people still do need to take personal responsibility but it's society's role and and government's role to give people the best chance of making the healthy choice. So here we talk about making the healthy choice the easy choice, which is the public policy, and then promoting that healthy choice, which is the personal responsibility. Um, But unfortunately, I think a lot of the debate or a lot of the um, approaches taken by governments have been towards the personal responsibility end of the spectrum, and not nearly enough on the public policy.
0: There's a powerful metaphor that applies here that's commonly used in public health about upstream and downstream intervention. Could you describe what that means?
1: Yes, yeah, so the, the metaphor refers to at what stage do you tackle the problem. If you tackle it right downstream, you're dealing with the diabetes and the obesity once it's happened, and all of those sort of health services thing, which we spend an awful lot of money doing, and we do invest heavily in downstream approaches.
0: I mean, not to mention that we invest money, but it's very hard to turn some of these problems
1: around. It's very hard to turn some of them around. A lot of it is actually just managing the end-stage complications of a, of a long-standing problem. So, um, But nevertheless, the, these are people that have these problems, and we do invest large amounts of money in providing the health services to support them. Um, you could talk about midstream uh, approaches which target the individual, and so you might think of that, for example, like uh, um, seatbelt regulations, which say you have to wear a seatbelt, so it's influencing your behavior um, directly. Uh, for, for obesity or for nutrition and physical activity, most of, almost all of the interventions at a midstream level around influencing individuals is around motivation, uh, education, social marketing, those kind of what we call soft policies. Now, then, ups, when you shift upstream, you're then dealing with the environment. You're dealing with the conditions that people face that influence their decisions and their behaviors. And in my view, that's where most of the effort needs to be because you are then providing an environment which is makes it easier f- to take the healthy choices. So that can be in the physical activity environment, changing the built environment, so it's easy to be physically active, or in the food environment, so the healthy food choices are easier. So we'll come
0: back in a few moments and talk about more specific policy approaches that one might consider, but what, what would be an example or two of the upstream approach for dealing with
1: obesity? Well, for example, regulations to, to, to ban or to restrict um, junk food marketing to children would be would be an example. Um, other things like, uh, like taxation, taxes on, on soft drinks, which I know has been Um, talked about here, regulations around food labeling requirements and so on. They're all at a regulatory level creating the environment. doesn't mean to say you have to choose that food, but it's there for you to use and make it easier for you.
0: So there's this interesting um, catch-22, if you will, about approaching policy because you'd like to have as much evidence as possible to base a policy upon. That is, Mm -hmm. you'd like it to be informed decision and be supported by science. But in many of the cases, these policies will have effects that you can't determine until they're put in, in, into effect. So I know your own work has tried to sort through that and, and tried to find ways of determining which policies might have the greatest impact. Could you explain some about how you've gone about
1: that? Yeah, this is a challenge because policy making is a bit more of an art than a science, and it's uh, made for a whole lot of reasons, uh, including political reasons, which unfortunately tend to dominate and evidence really is right down at the bottom of the list in many cases about uh, about policies and we we see this not just in obesity but just in general so it is a real challenge in public health to be able to bring the evidence to the decision makers in a form that is digestible that is important and can imping, impinge on their decisions and when you work with policymakers, and they say we really want to do something about obesity, about making uh, the food environment, for example, healthier. Um, What does the evidence say when you go to the literature? Now, when you go to the literature and you look at some of the studies, they're often not particularly helpful. For a start, most of them are describing the problems rather than the solutions, but they may not get you to that that point. So we've taken an approach um, of saying, okay, if we don't have um, the best data, let's get the best available, the best that we can, and model what the impact of various intervention options might be. Now in, in health science, and uh, we're not so used to this kind of modelling concept, it seems like fuzzy evidence, but to be honest, this is what politicians use all the time. If they are using evidence, it's from, say, economic modelling to run the, run the, run the economy. So they're used to it. And we're trying to bring that discipline into trying to get the best available data, run it through some models, and say, which ones are the best bang for the buck? What are you gonna spend on it, and what's the likely impact?
0: So let's take a hypothetical example of one of the public policy things that you alluded to before, which would be, say, a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. So we don't really know how much that would work or not work, we can only guess. But what is the best available evidence, and how would one trace the impact of a beverage tax like that on consumption and then on health?
1: So you would take you'd take a tax, and obviously the higher the tax, the higher the price, and therefore the most the more that will affect behavior. So it'll be a, a graded effect. And there are what's called uh, price elasticity, so there are, for each uh, category of food, there are some numbers which suggest if you increase the price by 10%, what, how, what percent will that affect the consumption? And you plug that into the model, and then you say, okay, well, if consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages goes down by 8%, for example, then what will that do to calorie intake? and therefore what will that do to, body mass, to weight and body mass index, and you model it out like that. And so you take your best estimates of what that particular size of tax will do to change, um, to change body weight and change the, the amount of obesity.
0: So you, more than any person I believe in the world, has done just this kind of modeling research, and what comes out at the other end? I mean, what, what would be the greatest of the the most effective public policies in helping deal with the obesity problem from what you found so far.
1: Yeah, well, a few interesting patterns emerge, and, uh, and we, we sort of saw those when we did our first batch of these in Australia. The first thing that emerges is that, the, um, is that policies generally are relatively cheap. If they're regulations, uh, like a banning junk food advertising, they're relatively cheap, so they don't cost much. Um, programs, health promotion programs, promoting walking and you know, aerobics programs and those sort of things do cost money. Health services cost a lot of money. So you get a gradation there in terms of cost. You also get a gradation in terms of reach. If you have a policy like uh, putting up the tax on, on sugar sweetened beverages, that applies across the board. Everybody is affected. Um, whereas if you have um, a program in, in the promoting physical activity and after-school programs, that will only ha- only reach a certain number of kids, for example. So right away,
0: and then supporting something like obesity surgery or obesity something surgery would is be even a smaller
1: number. Even even smaller number. That's right. So you have to play off um, the reach and the and the impact and the cost and all of these things. Um, the other thing that became apparent was that the ones that were physical activity alone um, had a very little impact, had a low impact, to a degree because physical activity per se is not a powerful way to um, to, to reduce weight or to um, to, to promote uh, healthy weight. Physical activity is really important in it, but it's not as powerful as food. Right. Um, so the, the physical activity interventions were less potent than the food-based intervention. so you know you start to see these patterns emerge, and I think uh, the more interventions we can plug into it, the more interesting these patterns all will emerge.
0: Can you give us a feel for what some of the things at the top of the list would be on the food side? What sort of public policy things can be justified by your modelling research now?
1: Well, the the, the policy ones, um, for example, around around regulations to restrict junk food advertising to kids, came out the top. Um, that's that's one that affects all kids, um affects high income and low income kids. um the the influence on each individual kid is quite small, but put it together and it had the biggest impact and it had the least cost, and over time in fact uh, save money. So things like that, the policies turned out to be effective. The programs, uh, particularly around promoting active transport and physical activity, turned out to be quite expensive and not not producing a big impact.
0: Okay, so things like restricting um, food marketing directed at children raise the inevitable nanny state complaints that government shouldn't be so intrusive in our lives. How do you respond to that?
1: Yeah, the nanny state argument comes up as a sort of flippant way to dismiss uh, what, what should be a serious public policy debate. And uh, my view is that if you're talking about children, actually nannies are very good for children. They care about children, they try to protect children, and they support parents. And I think if government took up some of those characteristics, our children would be in much better shape. So this nanny state, I think, is what we call in Australia a furphy. It's a it's a distractor um, and, and a serves to sort of dismiss what should be important public public policy.
0: And you've also made the point that we readily accept in our cultures things that would be more intrusive even, considered more intrusive than say, regulating food advertising to children. Could you give us some examples of those?
1: Of course we do, we accept these restrictions all the time when we jump in a car. We have to put on a seatbelt, we have to drive on a certain side of the road, we have to obey a speed limit, we can't uh, drink alcohol, and so on and so on. Same with tobacco, uh, same with many, many things around public health. We accept restrictions on our, if you like, freedom to do whatever we want um, for, the, for our own benefit and for the greater population benefit. And, and yet, when it comes to physical activity and, and healthy eating, it seems that this nanny state um, uh, accusation keeps coming up. But I can't think of a single thing that a government could impl- implement which would tell me what I can and can't eat and whether I should exercise. Most of these regulations are targeted at the environment, just making it easier and, and for me to make my healthy decision. So it's much less nanny state than many of the things we already accept.
0: Good, well thank you so much. This work is very important and I think will form the foundation for what government should do about this massive public health problem of obesity as we go forward. So I appreciate you sharing this with us. Well, you're welcome. Our guest today was Professor Boyd Swinburne from Deakin University in Australia. I welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of other podcasts that we've recorded, a free email newsletter on obesity and nutrition policy, and also a variety of other resources. Thank you.